Greetings! Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. Follow us on Twitter um, at the handle at clergy lay. That's at clergy lay. And join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother Chris, a priest. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm doing well this week, Kirk. How are you? I uh, am am great. Little stressed out. Vacation is coming up. My wife's packing like a crazy person, and uh, but but it's all exciting. Uh, once we get on the road, everything will be great. Yeah. Now, hang on. Let's just talk about modifying <laughs> words here so she is packing as if she were a crazy person or you're just saying she's very busy packing okay so uh, i'm i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna walk through a minefield man i don't know about this i don't even know if we should go here um i am so fortunate to have married a person with many uh, positive character traits they're so unlike many of my defects. Um, and one of those is that uh, Kim is a just-so person. Um, she's a do-it-right person, not a do-it-quickly person, or not a it's-okay person, or not a I'm-sure-it'll-work-out-in-the-end type of person, which that's kind of more how I roll. Um, and so uh, in preparing for vacation, she has lists for all six members of our family. Um, she has cleaning tasks, note cards for all six members of our family, um, with completed checked off note cards to be <laughs> submitted back to her on certain dates. Um, and of, of course the benefit for this is that like we, I, I can, I can't remember the last time we forgot something important, um, or that strange contingencies weren't covered on vacations. So Kirk, tell me what would packing <laughs> look like if you were in charge? Okay. Well, we've seen this. Okay. So I mean, I, I got married at 25. So when I went on, like in the, the, the small period of time between college and marriage, like between 22 and 23, um, uh, packing was, so there was, there was one time where... I'm not asking how you would pack. How would you supervise <laughs> the packing of the household? I know that you would pack your stuff. But it's how... just the, the kids, if the kids oh, I, I can... underwear, they don't wear underwear? Yeah, I can't even go back and and picture how I would do it. Um, had I had I not married Kim, and had she not done, had she not slowly gone to work chiseling and 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 more molding me into something better than I was, something more organized, more thoughtful, more planned out. Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, it would probably be the night before, 
um, doing one grand goofy powwow with like loud rock music on <laughs> in their bedroom, sitting around like, all right, boys, everyone, pile, count underwear. Show me. Hold them up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine, ten. All right, put them in your bags. And but no, it's it's just all more methodical. But anyhow, what's going on right? I don't even understand like the loads of laundry and the stacks and like it's. But it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned the night before. I know. I know, Kirk, that you have been, <laughs> as a human being since the day before you graduated from college. But I do remember. <laughs> Being in your dorm room, uh, I guess it was, the day you it was the day you graduated from college because it was well after midnight. It was after midnight, yeah. It was 2, 3 a.m., and your dorm room looked uh, mysteriously like it did, you know, a week before, two weeks before, three weeks before, <laughs> and somehow you were going to move out, out a mere, I don't know, eight hours later. Isn't that crazy that, I don't know if this is still the case, that commencement is the same day as moving out. Like, you have the... <laughs> You, you have the ceremony and they're like, all right, get out of here. And like for me as like a slovenly, you know, 22 year old that couldn't you know, administrate my way out of a wet paper bag at the time. That was just, as you saw, all too much for me. But... You, you know, most people would have packed ahead of time and and not waited until commencement. It's just it's remarkable to me that there were I would I was walking up and down the hall that night. And there's some people that are just born old souls. Like they would, they had been stressing out two days before then about having stuff packed up and having boxes. And I remember thinking they were idiots like two days before. Like, what are you doing? Like, we got two days, man. Like, what bar are you going to tonight? Like, I, where are we going out? Yeah. Yeah. So I can, I can sort of picture Kirk running the household. Um, you know, going downstairs, all right, boys, like, throw everything in one bag. <laughs> and it doesn't matter if it's clean or not. There's a washing machine where we're going. Uh, we'll figure it out. And you get there, and, and, you know, someone's like, where's my, you know, ear cream, if that were a thing. But, like, you know, all the contingencies that are planned for, you know, that uh, my wife handles that as well. So where, where are you going? We are going to Williamsburg, Virginia, which I'm happy to announce uh, Governor Northam has announced will be open um, on on the 24th, which will be next Wednesday. We'll have been uh, at the, at our timeshare for like three or four days at that point. Uh, Jamestown, historic Jamestown, will open. So will Yorktown, which is on the north side of that peninsula. Um, uh, the Vir Virginia Beach, Newport News, all that stuff. Uh, all the beaches are going to be open, so we should be okay. It should be a, a fun mix of of beach life and and uh, and history nerd stuff, which I think will uh, will kind of satisfy everyone. Will scratch everyone where they itch. So, so is that amusement park still called Bush Gardens, the one in <laughs> Williamsburg? I that's I haven't even looked to see if that's going to be open. So that's that's not a plan. I'm, okay, I'm I'm guessing that's closed. And so okay. yeah. 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 My my mother in law is greatly distressed that the pool at our timeshare will be closed, but hmm. we'll we'll survive. Interesting. Yeah. But how far is it from the ocean? Like an hour and ten minutes. Oh, okay. So yeah, you're not it's not like that's a viable option. Like, oh, pool's closed, we'll just go ten minutes to the to the beach. Yeah. Hey, transition. I have some very different exciting news. Let's hear it. Not about our impending vacation. Uh so I mentioned last week uh that George got hit in the face mm -hmm. hard with a baseball. 
And uh, and he's kind of been slumping. Like the game after that, he asked the coach not to play in the infield. Like, can I play in the outfield so I don't have to face any sharp grounders? Is he back at the hot corner? Well, last night he was not at the hot corner, but he he played a couple innings at second base. Okay. And he made the defensive. He had the web gem, the defensive play of the game. Nice. Uh, moving to his left, lunging, stabbing a a hard ground ball, um, eliciting oohs and ahs from the crowd. Um, and making the throw he's to a, first. He's a regular Chuck Knobloch. Yes, and before before he well, lost the ability right, to throw, before to first he went base. full Steve Blass and like couldn't yeah. throw to you know fifteen feet to the first baseman. But uh, but although then, can, 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 is Georgia reliable thrower to first base? At that age, you, uh, you never so – so maybe, maybe base, Chuck Knobloch is a better analog than, than I initially thought. Have you ever seen, uh, like, 10-year-olds play baseball recently? Second <laughs> base recently. second base is really interesting because it's close enough where you kind of – even for adults, where you kind of have to think about it. Like, if you're yeah. throwing from short to third, you just whip it over, right? You have to because mm-hmm. you got to get it there. But second base, you have enough time, and the guy's close enough, you can't just, like, whip it at him. So <laughs> – you know, you'll see adults sometimes like do like a do kind of a shovel pass or an underhand mm-hmm. toss to the first baseman if you got time, or just a light overhand toss. Well, that um, kind of messes with a ten-year-old's brain. Like, how do I throw it at another ten-year-old who's ten feet away from me without breaking his nose or throwing it at his feet or something, but still getting the runner out? And so you're not see, used to an underhand lob, so that right. I can see that being pretty awkward. Yeah. You see, yeah, 10-year-olds come up with very strange solutions. <laughs> yeah. But anyhow, he did like kind of an awkward, slow overhand like toss. But he got, he got the runner out. So as is the old baseball cliche, the next inning he's up, and he mm. ripped a hard hit RBI single to right field um, and, then, and then scored. And he got this – is, this is a thing in western Pennsylvania – after the game, they line up one team on the first baseline and one team on the second baseline. And now, because of COVID, we don't we don't do you know handshakes or anything, and we have the kids spread out. Um, so there's not the good game, good game, good game, good game, good game. There's not the good game line, right? But we still do game balls, and he got the game ball. Nice. Yeah. So he's just walking on air. So mm. he came home. He came home last night, and he's like, Kim missed the game because again, looping back to our initial conversation, she is packing like a crazy person so she missed the game so he's like don't tell mom that we won and don't tell mom that i got the game ball like let me break it so he he did this whole thing where like he walks in with an exaggerated slump shoulder uh charlie brown like a like an exaggerated depressed charlie brown walk and kim's like hey george how's the game he's like oh we lost and she's like oh really what was the score and he's like, psych! Got the game ball. Oh, people no longer say psych, but he's like, nah, I got the game ball. And he had the ball hidden behind his his back, and so he was very excited about all of that. That's great. Yeah. You got That's anything great. interesting in your life? No, it's hot here. It's hot. Yeah. <laughs> it's super hot. We went from from cool. May was quite cool. Uh, April was 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 warm. May was cool and and significantly rainier than usual. Uh, and it's just been hot and dry. It's unbelievable. That sounds about right. How about we look at the gospel for Sunday? Let's do it. Let's do it.
All right, man. I uh, our gospel for uh, for Sunday, um, which is the. Let me go to the tab, uh, which is the third Sunday after Pentecost. Um, is from we're working our way through Matthew. It's uh, Matthew chapter ten, verses sixteen through thirty-three. Would um, you like me to read it? I would. Yeah, please. All right. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear worshipped, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I, will also, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh my gosh, Christopher. This is a hard text, man. So what's going on here? <laughs> this is a hard text. And um, it's actually, I'm not going to be preaching on it this Sunday. I'm going to be preaching on the first lesson, which comes from Jeremiah. And this pairing is actually uh, pretty interesting because... It, it it speaks to the cost of discipleship, uh, and so multiple things can be true at the same time. So Jesus says to us, He says, uh, "My yoke is easy and my burden is light." Um, you know the yokes that we take on, the pressure we put on ourselves, um, and especially in, in His time, He was talking about uh, the, the the great mantle of the law, um, which Jesus took upon Himself. Um, and he lived for us, and, and his righteousness is credited to us. And yet, though, follow, there is a, a great cost to following him. That um, in, in the book of, in the, the reading from Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 7 through 13, uh, we see Jeremiah, this is a lament of Jeremiah to the Lord saying, I have become a laughing stock. Uh, uh, I keep crying out violence and destruction, and, and, I am an object of derision all day long. 
and uh, oh lord you have deceived me <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> the reading begins yeah yes yeah uh and, and so that, that's what i'm going to be preaching on but you can see why these are paired together um that that following jesus does certainly have a cost and it's it's um it's interesting in um in the verses immediately following this which we will get to next week um this idea of jesus not coming um to bring uh, peace, but a sword. There, in fact, will be divisions. And so, like, why would we be surprised? Like, it's funny how we think, um, well, we love Jesus, and Jesus is God, and Jesus brings peace, and Jesus is great. So everyone's going to love us, right? And 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 then suddenly we're surprised when, when that's not the case. Uh, but in fact, that um, when we are sent out in his name, that that we are like sheep, sheep among wolves. And he warns them that uh, of, of the, that this is going to be a costly thing. Um, and, uh, but, but he also gives them assurances. He's, he's not like, you're not, he's not like you're alone. You're on your own. He says, you know, when, when they deliver you over, don't worry, don't be anxious. The words will be given to you. Uh, and, uh, he, he goes on and, and he says uh, to them, because he has been called the devil. He says, um, this, the reason you're able to cast out demons is because, you yourself are like working for the demon, like Beelzebul, and um, he's like, "Listen, uh, if you if they're treating me like this, and I'm the master, um, how much more will they malign you who have chosen to be a part of my household? Uh, it, it, you know, you don't have to follow me, but you have, and so if if they're if they treat me this way, they're going to treat you even worse." And uh, And, and so he gives them comfort uh, it, kind of at the end, um, reminding them that their hairs on their head are numbered. And, and we, we have the reminder uh, in, in when he talks in the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about uh, do not be anxious, uh, how God will provide, that uh, God provides for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. And, and this is kind of a reminder that we are much more valuable than birds uh, and, and that there is a reward for those uh, who do follow him. He says, everyone acknowledges me before men. I will acknowledge before my father who's in heaven. But there's also a cost. <laughs> if, 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 if you don't remember also, if, if, if you turn your back on me, that, that I will turn my back on you. Uh, and just a few more things. Uh, of course, you know, Kirk, that um, there is a, a, the literal meaning of the word martyr is witness. Mm. And usually we think of the word martyr as someone who has died for the faith. Um, and, and, of course, that's what it's come to mean. But uh, in dying for the faith, in fact, um, this is their witness to the world, that they are not renouncing God. And we have wonderful examples uh, of Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp and other early martyrs, uh, uh, people who died for their faith, who were given the, the option to recant their faith and chose to... Uh, be torn apart by wild by by animals in the Colosseum, like like Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, his bravery in in enduring this uh, brought many people. Uh, his witness brought many people uh, to faith, saying that there must be some substance here that he's willing um, to 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 uh, take this punishment for his faith. Uh, and. Uh, there was uh, one last thing I, w I wanted to say before we moved on. 
but I've forgotten it. So you go, and and uh, I'll uh, close out with with my uh, last comment. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, Christians in America had had a good had a good run. Had a good two hundred fifty year run. Um, and uh, we sense, we can feel the wind in our face for the first time ever. We've had the wind at our back. And uh, I, th- I think we see, we read texts like these and we, rec- we see the times and we say, aha, um, this is us. And, uh, and I, the posture though that, uh, that we take or that I see many Christians take um, inst- instead of enduring persecutions, um, gladly, as as we read about through Easter and we went through First Peter. First Peter lays out uh, Peter lays out a, a very clear model of how to endure um, with gladness these persecutions. Um, we American Christians tend to squawk a lot, <laughs> mm-hmm. and any Christian who's online, you'll see this on Twitter or Facebook. Um, we let everyone know that um, we are being persecuted whether by um, Hollywood or the culture or courts or governors or, or just kind of a, a general um, culture that's beginning to, to look upon the, the church with uh, skepticism or, or seeing us as sources of bigotry or hatred or whatever. And, um, and I think that, that probably when we read this, we see that uh, we're probably not called to squawk, <laughs> but, to, but to say, aha, yes, um, we, we knew this was coming. And, and to bear it up, to use an old-fashioned phrase, um, in a manly fashion. Um, I think I, I was reminded of, I, in, tw- in 2017, um, I and uh, my rector, Paul Cooper, we went on a bit of a, a Protestant pilgrimage. <laughs> um, it was two, 2017 marked the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, if you want to say that the Reformation began with the nailing of the 95, 95 Theses, upon the door of the castle church in Wittenberg in 1517. 1517 is popularly thought of as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Um, uh, one, of, one of perhaps the greatest hinge points, though, of the Reformation, um, there are many hinge points in Luther's life, the Diet of Worms, um, but there's, there's something, the Peace of Augsburg, when the German princes who had decided to cast in their lots with Luther and defy the papacy and uh, Charles, the, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. Um, these, these princes are called before, before the emperor, Charles V, in an audience, and they do something uh, that the emperor did not expect. They kneel and they say, they hand over what's called the Augsburg Confession, which is kind of a confession of, of Lutheran faith, uh, and and they say, uh, you may have our our heads, um, but not our confession of faith. And that's all they did, and they knelt down and they they kind of knelt knelt their heads down. And uh, Charles V, who ha- actually had been elected by a majority of German princes, German electors, um, because his I forget his father or his mother was a Habsburg, was was Austrian German, um, and they thought he would be kind of a pro-German element in the Holy Roman Emperor. Turns out that, that he had more Spanish influence, the Spanish side of the family. And so he spoke poor German, but in, but in halting German, uh, moved by these princes of the empire, 
kneeling before them, extending his head. He says, Nay, 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 Nixukopf. No, 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 not the head. Um, and this should be our posture. Um, not squawking, <laughs> but just firmly, quietly, humbly, a continuing to confess the faith, recognizing that Jesus said that the hour may come when this will happen. And so we, we, we should just say to the culture, um, you may have our heads, but you will not have our confession of faith. Mm-hmm. And um, there's far more power in that um, mm-hmm. than in squawking. Mm-hmm. And so that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> you seem deep. You look deep in thought. <laughs> well, I was just, I was just thinking, do, do I kind of provoke you at be devil's advocate? <laughs> do I jokingly say, uh, so we should not be litigious? Is that what you're saying? Which actually, actually, there, there, there is a there is nuance there because you know we do have freedoms under the law, right? And um, and, and we should um, seek to um, defend ourselves in in the courts. Well, so look at verse sixteen. Uh, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent mm. as doves. So mm. don't be foolish, right? Yeah. Um, if we have legal protections, uh, don't squander them. Yeah, I would say. But yeah. I, I don't think but, complaining is using the legal protections. Right, out. right. We're, we're, we're off, so often we complain where, um, uh, be, because we have lost this this power in the culture, that the culture has mm. kind of turned against us. Um, and, and in fact, that's doing nothing to, to kind of win back the culture. Um, and uh, it's not – and complaining isn't doing anything to really help protect our personal freedoms, I hear you saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, – and this this is a, a small brief um, plea for all our listeners to to not not leave your church, but the power and importance of a confessing liturgical faith. Um, uh, we there are emails, frantic emails, paranoid emails being sent out from both mm-hmm. political parties, telling telling you that um, this or this political figure or the government or whatever the law courts are coming after your freedoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who, and, and we send those out and whatever. And on Sunday, we may be complaining, but are we confessing the faith? I believe as a body of believers, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Um, do we continue to confess the faith in boldness, um, even if it brings down persecution upon our head? Or are we just complaining? Because I think we have a lot of uh, pockets of American Christianity that are complaining, but not confessing. Sure. And I'm saying we should confess but not complain. But you're right. I don't think we shouldn't we shouldn't squander the legal protections. I don't think that's right, right. what I'm saying. Hey, you're not advocating saying just submission. Um, uh, where, where we are protected by all means, um, defend that freedom. But that doesn't uh, mean uh, being a jerk online. That doesn't mean um... – Yeah. Well, here's a devil's advocate, right? So you might say to me, okay, Kirk, that's really nice. Um, how will the culture see you and your puny church confessing the faith uh, in, in, in your building? They'll never see that. Well, well, <laughs> we should be on our feast days and our holy days. Uh, I don't, we should be out in the streets processing, looking really weird <laughs> mm. with mm. crosses and strange mm-hmm. vestments. Um, mm-hmm. uh, singing strange songs, um, looking confidently like um, something attractive and alien. Um, you think about the spread of Islam 
in Europe right now to a culture that believes nothing. Um, who is in the streets praying? Is it Christians or is it Muslims? Think of how ashamed even the concept of as a church walking out of your door and processing around your block, how ashamed that makes all of us feel like, ah, that's so weird. Why would we do that? Ah, right? Um, do Muslims feel weird in Paris when an entire street is shut down because they, they, they hear the call to prayer and so they kneel down and face east? I mean, there's no shame, there's confidence. So I I don't know. I think they're Christian solutions to um, to boldly confessing without complaining. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think verse 22 just really stands out. Uh, and again, um, it, it's easy to be surprised when we are hated for our faith. Uh, it's, we're surprised, like, well, wait a second. Like, uh, Jesus is, is pure goodness. How could you hate me for worshiping him? Uh, but Jesus from his lips says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hmm. Um, uh, our embrace of Jesus and his kingdom, uh, and his love for the marginalized, uh, as reasonable as we think that that is, um, that is going to, uh, most often make us hated by the world. The world is going to hate us. Um, which reminds me a bit of uh, the episode of, of Seinfeld where Jerry has the masseuse girlfriend who really doesn't like George. And George uh, is, has, has uh, they go on this double date and she just is really, um, George to her is, is just, she's like, I don't like him. And George's girlfriend breaks up with him because all he talks about is how he doesn't understand why this, he, he wants everybody to like him. <laughs> and uh, he just can't believe that she wouldn't like him. And, um, and in fact, uh, he, he begins to find that quite attractive. Uh, did you see what I did there, Kirk? I, I, I did. Was, was that a segue? Indeed, that was a transition to, uh, to our theology slash culture segment. Uh, so let's do a pause for um, the amazing music that you're going to plug in here. And here we are with our theology. So we decided, Kirk, that we would uh, combine our theology and our culture segment, um, and we're going to talk about Seinfeld. So, yeah. Kirk, tell me, why, do you, why is it that you think that a Christian can watch and enjoy uh, a godless TV show like Seinfeld? Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, so we're going to want to backfill a lot of that. <laughs> I mean, but with, like, so I'll answer your question, and I think we need to kind of backtrack and, and lay the groundwork for why— 
um, why Seinfeld's worth encountering, what Seinfeld is, kind of go through all that. Yeah, um, Seinfeld was both a uh, a symptom and a cause of things. Um, uh, it was easily the the um, the most watched, most consequential sitcom uh, in American history, which is probably done to say world history. Um, it captured, I think, the zeitgeist of the 90s, mm. and it captured a certain pivot point um, from modernity to post-modernity, uh, from, oh gosh, I mean, I don't, I hate, I, I, I really recoil from the idea of a Judeo-Christian culture. Um, uh, from mid-century modernism to post-Christian whatever whatever future historians and cultural anthropologists will call this current age um it, it certainly marked a pivot point um and and it's not it's not as if um you know a, a christian might plausibly object to watching game of thrones but seinfeld wasn't like that um seinfeld uh was full of full of humor witty cu uh, cultural observations and uh something that definitely that, that that all thoughtful christians that are interested in the culture um should engage with that was just a lot of throat clearing. Let's no, uh, no, let's that, lay the no, groundwork. No, yeah, okay. No, no. Let's stay here for just another minute. Okay. Um, uh, why why do you think we should be able to 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 laugh at immoral people on TV doing immoral things? Yeah, I mean, so there's most for most of Christian history, uh, most of Christian theology, Christian theologians. Uh, um, and clergy have encouraged uh, the flock to engage with the culture. There is a minority, uh, minority report in Christian thought that encourages cultural disengagement, right? Um, these would be kind of Anabaptist and Amish strains of thought. Um, and I respect and understand that. I just disagree with that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that we're called as... The, the, the passage that so many American Christians go to, right, to call to be salt and light in the culture, which is actually a really hard and confusing teaching. But, but anyhow, we're we're called to engage. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. No, so so I'm I'm sorry for setting up such provocative uh, devil's <laughs> advocate type questions, but um, if if this is indeed an objection that you have, I, I just want to explain why it is that we're engaging with this. Um, in fact, uh, it's interesting the shows that I've been. That, that, that are significant to me. Uh, I've had people, uh, I have one friend who just can't believe why I would watch them. Not not that he disapproves morally, but um, uh, recently I just watched Ozark, and it was interesting watching kind of the moral compromises and the cost of those moral compromises by the main characters. Um, and it's similar to, uh, it, it's a very similar show to Breaking Bad. And I know someone else, the uh, same, same person was like, I that this show does does nothing for me. I don't want to see the breakdown of one's virtue, but uh, in fact, I think that um, uh, th there could be a defense uh, morally of of um, to to show the breakdown of morals. Um, like once you start compromising, um, it's amazing what you're willing to compromise, and that's what we see in in o Ozark and in Breaking Bad. And so, um, in fact, uh, the the badness of the characters, um, just the the. Uh, the pure uh, selfishness of the characters in Seinfeld is quite funny how clueless they are. It, it is just laugh out loud funny. So that, that, that I guess is, is, is my way of introducing. So you want to, you want to go back. 
So let's go back. Yeah, let's go back. Let's go back. So um, uh, sitcoms before Seinfeld um, were usually uh, located in a household with a mother, a father, some children. Uh, Perhaps there were grandparents, aunts, uncles, um, friends. Um, There was sort of a constellation of secondary and tertiary characters that would come in and out uh, for comic relief or moral contrast, perhaps, with our, our protagonists, but it usually involved a nuclear family. Um, usually, had, I guess. I guess it's something like a, different a very, with Cheers in the eighties. Cheers, I was gonna say yeah, right? Cheers. Definitely but, but with was a Cheers, departure. and I want, I want to, I want to bring up Cheers later. Um, Cheers, remember the theme song where everybody knows your name. Um, the bar was certainly a, a substitute family. Sure. Um, and uh, and there are even family dynamics, dynamics of fatherhood and brotherhood. Um, uh, the, the, um, there were love interests that, that we as the viewer gotcha. were, were, were um, sucked into hoping that they would get married gotcha. and uh, we would be carried along hoping that they w- it would end in marriage and a family. Um, so I guess the one with John Ritter and, and the two girl roommates would be the same thing where that was kind of a substitute for a, for a family. Right, right. What's right. the name of that show I'm thinking of? Three's Company. Three's Company. Yep, yep. And uh, you have a, a, a fundamental discontinuity um, with Seinfeld, which which really sets up kind of a new model mm-hmm. um, uh, for sitcoms later that that removes it um, from the household, um, from the economoi to something else, right? And we can talk about what that something else looks like. Yeah. So what? Um, uh, Seinfeld begins in what? Eighty nine, ninety one. One of those two. I think it's eighty nine. Um, because I'm, effort, I'm efforting. You you uh, you recommended uh, that I that I go back and begin in season six, which uh, begins in 1994, the fall of 94, which was my freshman year in high school. So, freshman year in high school is every, a very formative time for everyone. You would have been a sixth grader, so I think I was maybe mm-hmm. watching some of those episodes live from that season. Because Christopher, as we were going back through, I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember that. Uh, and I don't know you. It was you, you. Maybe were probably less interested. I don't know, maybe going through your baseball cards or shooting baskets outside or whatever, maybe in bed at that point. I forget, Central Time was, Seinfeld maybe had the 8 o'clock slot, the 8.30 slot. Um, but yeah, so now season six, uh, you and I kind of have been going through 1994, um, and uh, and that's kind of when it makes a moral pivot and starts to find its its footing and its voice in kind of, um, well, a, a show about nothing, which is what we'd what we'd like to talk about. But I've been I've been monologuing. So, um, Seinfeld. Why did you Why did you uh, revisit Seinfeld recently, Christopher? Why have you taken the deep dive back into that old pool? Honestly, I don't I don't even remember why. It had been a long time, and so it's interesting with with me being younger than you, and, and is that I didn't really watch it much during its original run, mm. and uh, I experienced Seinfeld not in sequence, but in college it would be common for me to come back uh, from dinner and to watch uh, two or three episodes um, after dinner. Uh, it was on uh, Fox, I think. I don't remember what, what time it would have been, what time we were getting back. If it was on Fox at 6.30 and then on TBS at 7 and 7.30. Pittsburgh, Fox 53. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and um, so, so we, we would just watch whichever rerun was on. Uh, and then that was kind of the beginning of, of uh, kind of episodes sitting on servers. So as as you had favorite episodes like The Strike or or the Bizarro Jerry, uh, you download, or the Merv Griffin show, you download those and you'd watch them on your, uh, in kind of low quality on, on your laptop. Uh, and uh, it, so it was, it was um, 
a big communal thing. Like we would watch it together in college. Uh, yes. And, and uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and it it, it um, it's a very funny show. Uh, the mind of Larry David. Uh, well, first of all, like Seinfeld's comedy, I I find very funny, and, and and it's funny how self-deprecating the TV show is. Um, that that it's it's uh, the, everyone on the show kind of makes fun of his comedy. That like, oh, you're the guy who kind of talks about everyday things. Like, what's the deal with airplane peanuts? Or you know, right? <laughs> um, well, what what is? It's tremendously funny because it's stuff that that it's 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 broadly appealing. Everybody can identify with it. Um, you know, observations, uh, kind of observational humor, um, and so his his bits I think work very well, uh, and and so the combination of Seinfeld and Larry David, uh, the, his co-creator, uh, and and the one, the one in in ep, it might be episode one of season six that. Uh, that really tickled me was the big salad where um, that's episode two. Yeah. Oh, that's episode two. The, yeah, the central yeah. premise of uh, the, the, the kind of the conflict is that um, George pays for a big salad for Elaine, but, and brings it up to Jerry's apartment, but it's his girlfriend who hands it to Elaine and Elaine thanks the girlfriend, even though George was the one who paid for it. And there's this intense pettiness in, within these relationships where for George it's not about the money it's about the credit that he wants credit for buying the salad and and his girlfriend got credit for it uh, and and what Larry David does is he doubles down on the pettiness by not only having George kind of demand the credit and the thank you from Elaine but word gets back to his girlfriend that that um, she finds out that Elaine knows that George bought the salad and she's so petty that she's like, uh, how did you know, George? She's like, George, how did Elaine know that you bought the salad? I handed it to her. So she kind of knowingly took credit for the salad. And this is all very stupid and trivial, um, but just tickles me uh, in the right spot. In that, in that same episode, and, and this, is, this is as well a, um, an example of how uh, – Seinfeld as a nihilistic show trivializes the the um, the cosmic yeah. and the vitally yeah. important. Yeah. That same yeah. episode ends with a mockery of the O.J. Simpson Bronco yes. Um, yes. runaway. That's so. Cra- there's this side plot with Kramer, where uh, Kramer <laughs> plays golf with an ex major leaguer, um, who Ma- major bro- league who, baseball player, yeah, major league yeah. baseball player who breaks the rules, right? And he, he picks basically... up his ball to clean it, and, jo- <laughs> and, and Kramer penalizes him a stroke. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and so he's later suspected of murdering a dry cleaner, and Kramer helps him <laughs> flee in a white Bronco. <laughs> and so yeah. it, it takes something that was um, cosmically important in 1994, mm-hmm. um, which was o- the OJ um, really was a was a great rift in American society, and um, uh, I mean talk about stuff that never changes, right? The uh, the cause of a lot of navel gazing over racial relations and. Um, uh, all those conversations were happening, and here Seinfeld takes that um, the 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 moral and makes it trivial and comic, mm. um, which is kind of a theme that will will uh, will continue to to go over. So let's let's talk about why why um, when I keep saying shows about nothing. Mm. So so there's there's an episode, a key episode where Seinfeld kind of finds its voice, and and Jerry and Larry David, Larry David, I think less. More, more subconsciously, because it's just who he is. It oozes from his skin. I think, I think he is sort of a Nietzschean, mm-hmm. uh, an unthinking Nietzsche, unthinking Nietzschean, an un, mm-hmm. uh, just kind of a natural nihilist. 
Um, and Jerry Seinfeld, who's more of a bourgeois type, he has his wife, kids. Um, he's, he sort of lives kind of a normal Joe life, and he happens to be a man who's really funny. Um, but he kind of gets pulled into Larry David's moral universe, and at some point he decides sort of to go along with it. And mm. and it's kind of clear. It becomes clear to him in this episode. Uh, could you talk to us about the pitch? About the pitch, yeah. Yes. So uh, Jerry gets approached at his comedy club by people from NBC and said, "Hey, we'd we'd love for you to we love your comedy. We'd love for you to develop a show for NBC." And so Jerry's trying to figure out a a, a way. Uh, like, what do I what do I bring to them? So they're interested in me. Uh, I have no ideas for a show. And uh, is it George who who's like, how about a show about nothing? Right. Yep. A show about nothing. And he's like, well, what, what do you mean? Like, how do you have a show about nothing? And it's like, well, you know, remember that one time when we were at a Chinese restaurant and we couldn't get a table and we were just waiting the whole time? Like, that could be a show, which is actually a, a, quite a funny show. There's a little bit more going on. But but uh, essentially, it's 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 uh, it's all interpersonal relationships is, is what, what the um, – what the comedy is about but so so they go to pitch the show and, and they're like well what's it about and they're like it's about nothing um and it's funny how how meta this is this uh that um acknowledging that, that seinfeld itself is a show about nothing like uh there's kind of no central premise behind it besides these these four new yorkers trying to just uh well, I guess with, I was going to say go about their lives, but they each have kind of their own motivations, uh, which which uh, ch- change at, at various times. But but yeah, they're they're pitching a show about nothing, acknowledging that um, that kind of for the first time ever, this this is in fact a comedy that doesn't have like a central theme or premise or I- there's no idea behind it, Kirk. Right, right. Yeah, no, I have the script up here. Um... And uh, George says, an idea for the show. Jerry says, I still don't know what the idea is, George. <laughs> it's about nothing, Jerry. Right, George. Everybody's doing something. We'll do nothing. <laughs> Jerry says, so we go into NBC and we tell them we've got an idea for a show about nothing, George. Exactly, <laughs> Jerry. They say, what's your show about? I say, nothing. George says, there you go. Jerry nodding. I think you I may, think have, you something may have something there. there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, um, but philosophically, it's really funny, and we all laugh at that, um, but philosophically, what's happening is, um, and my, my text here that I'm, that I'm pulling out was a, um, a great book that I read in college, uh, I forget the class, but it's called Shows About Nothing, and it's by Thomas Hibbs, and it's about a nihilistic turn in pop culture, um, and it references a bunch of uh, uh, shows and movies from the 80s and 90s. Uh, the Exorcist, Cape Fear, Silence of the Lambs, L.A. Confidential, Seven, uh, Forrest Gump, Natural Born Killers, Titanic, Pulp Fiction, Train Spotting, and it ends with Seinfeld because Seinfeld really encapsulates this cultural pivot. And nihilism is the philosophical belief that there are no moral precepts, there is no God, there is no ethical substrate that underlays the universe. Right? There is no right or wrong. There is no right or wrong. Um, and so, uh, in in Seinfeld, um, the characters uh, here. Let me let me pull this up here. What I uh, the note that I had. Um, uh, the characters Nietzsche has Friedrich Nietzsche, who is sort of um, the great adherent of philosophical nihilist 
nihilism. He advocated sort of the death of God, that we acknowledge that we no longer believe in God and we move on. We kind of get over it and move on. Um, he has this concept of the last man, um, which is sort of a, a man that no longer thinks big. And uh, and these are, these characters are sort of like, like the last man. Um, they have a fragile sense of self. They're incapable of living any determinate form of life. Their unformed, childlike characters render them capable of slipping in and out of various roles, even including the role of criminal. Um, the one role that seems improbable, in fact implausible, would be that of family life, right? The, the, the natural moral structures of family life seem um, comically implausible for any of these characters. Can you picture any of these characters being a parent? Right? That's no. the whole point, right? That's yeah. the whole point. The, the very serious American pursuit of uh, the pursuit of happiness um, no longer exists. Um, rather, it's the pursuit of um, pettiness, uh, uh, get it, uh, uh, settling scores. And these aren't even large scores, right? This is the narcissism of small squabbles, right? Every show mm -hmm. magnifies a small squabble into a cosmic, uh, a cosmic um, argument. Right, and so this is what we mean when it's a nihilistic. It's a show about nothing. Not only that, but it's never sentimental. That's intentionally yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we never, you never hear the audience go ah, <laughs> as never. at the end of a season, two characters finally kiss, or someone meets his father. Um, rather, that is mocked. Um, we laugh at any character that would want to see a moral resolution to a situation. Right, um, we're drawn into the, to laughing at that. Um, outside of a small coterie of acquaintances, right? Jerry's world is one where instead of, like in Cheers, everybody knows your name, nobody knows your name. And you wish that those who do wouldn't, right? Jerry sort of, and his <laughs> characters avoid any intimacy at all, right? On one occasion, Kramer nearly ruins Jerry's life by pasting pictures of all the residents of the apartment building at its entrance, right? He's Jerry uh, Kramer's trying to create community, and to Jerry, right, it almost ruins his life. Um, in another episode, uh, Elaine suggests to uh, David Dinkins' mayoral yes. campaign that everyone yeah. in the city should wear a name tag so that New York would be just like a small town. And what happens? Dinkins loses the election, <laughs> right? This, this is a running theme. Um, multiple. <laughs> Uh, kind of conflicts in the show uh, d deal with having to talk to someone on the phone a little bit too long. Uh, like Jerry's like, oh, your assistant always, I have to always have to talk to her before, you know, yeah. Yeah, um, Jerry's parents and George's parents represent, um, instead of leave it to Beaver, right, a, a sort of um, a lunacy, um, crazy people. Mm. Um, everyone's favorite episode, Festivus, mm. um, <laughs> has uh, George's parents George's father, <coughs> excuse me, inventing a holiday that involves a, sort of a, a freak show series of events, including a Festivus poll, an airing of grievances. Um, so uh, it's sort of an inverting of the natural happy, happy family patterns that give meaning mm. to all of our lives and making them either scary or comical or absurd, right? So this is what we mean when we say it's a it's a nihilistic show about nothing. It inverts the kind of the natural uh, morality that we all, the moral rhythms that we all feel in our family lives and makes them either ridiculous or actually, um, let's talk about um, co the role of comic coincidence 
in Seinfeld's universe, right? It's almost as if there's a malevolent god that's playing dice. Mm. Um, so think in season six, I forget if it's episode three or four, where um, Kramer harasses Jerry about these uncashed checks from Jerry's uh, nana, right? And Jerry's like, she's my nana. Like, she just, these are $10 checks. It's $10. And Kramer's like, this one's from 1987. What are you doing? Like, are you ungrateful? She obviously wanted you to have this. So Jerry goes to cash all these $10 checks um, from this old defunct bank, chemical bank, right? And so Jerry's nana, which ha who hasn't gone outside for, you know, 20 years, she's on a fixed income, this old bank account is overdrawn. And so she has to wander downtown. Um, and, uh, and she ends up calling Jerry from a bank. Uh, and, J and Elaine picks up. Jerry thinks it's... Um, this harassing girl, and Jerry tells tells Elaine like mouths to her, hang up, hang up, hang up, and so we all laugh as Elaine nastily tells uh tells her to go to bleep, never drop call dead. back, drop dead. That's what, yes, drop dead, and never call back, right? And we're all laughing, um, but this is like an inversion of natural family familial sympathies that we all have, right? And it, and it's also the comedic coincidence right what yeah. what coin flips along the way led to this uh scenario right where there's a malevolent god sort of playing with people well and it's funny that you talk about like um god and, and a malevolent god and uh, so when when uh when they actually do pick pick up the 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 pilot and nbc des decides to produce it george has has a uh like a little white thing on his on his lip that he that he's like oh great now when my life is finally getting good um god decides to kill me and they're like i thought you didn't believe in god and he said only for the bad things you know like i don't believe you know in, in a god that you know does good things in the world but like when god punishes me that's the god i believe in <laughs> yeah yeah um it's also it's also amoral so they're they're mm. an in intricate series of rules that keep tripping yes. the characters up but they have nothing to do with ethics and morality right um and so when the characters get in trouble it's because of arbitrary etiquette that trips them up um and 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 really uh it's the narcissism of small differences right it's it's tiny yeah, I, I, I guess I'm repeating myself. Uh, tiny violations of etiquette, right? Can you think any any examples of this that cause characters to get into deep trouble? Well, well, I mean, so they they constantly discuss this, like, well, um, after how many dates do you need to actually go face to face to break up with somebody? Right. <laughs> and 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 and, and uh, that's kind of a funny theme in the show is just the arbitrary. Okay, well, after six dates. Uh, Elaine's dating this this old guy that she's about to break up with him, and he has a stroke. And um, next next we see her feeding him and singing Yankee Bean that she's feeding him soup. Um, she ends up uh, breaking up with him anyway. Um, that yeah, the, the that these uh, they, they get in trouble all the time for these a uh, double dipping a chip, um, right? All sorts of kind of yeah, it's it's uh, or George's claim airport pickup. It's a binding social contract, right? Yes. So you ha you magnify these these uh, perhaps social understandings that no one ever knew, 
and you go to the wall over that, um, well, obviously being cruel and ruining the lives um, thoughtlessly of those around you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How much do you tip a, a guy for a bag, and then you ask him, and then Elaine's like, well, "That's way too much," and he tosses her bag in the other, in the other pile. And most rules are are involve saving you from embarrassment. Um, mm, when you're yes. asked about an, an ugly baby, do you lie? Mm. Right. <laughs> yes. How long do you keep a uh, a, a um, card? A card. Right. How long do you keep a card? Two days, two weeks, right? Because that's what gets him in trouble with the PBS host that he's interested yes. in yes. for the telethon, right? She walks in and she sees the greeting card thrown in and she's like, ah, what? You just threw it in? And he's like, well, to be fair, how no, much no, time no. did you she, spend on it? No, she <laughs> says, I put a lot of thought into that card. And he said, well, you picked it out, but it's not like you painted the picture or wrote the poem. That's right. <laughs> no, she signed her name. Yeah. Right. She found it in his in his trash. It wasn't on his yeah. Right. So we see the elevation of arbitrary etiquette, mm-hmm. um, and the denigration of true morality and ethics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Which brings us to um the the episode that 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 caused the pivot that that Jerry Seinfeld has identified as really making consciously deciding okay, um we are we are a show about nothing. We are we're we're marking the cultural zeitgeist, and that is the Junior Mints. The Junior Mint episode. So, Christopher, what did, do you did, remember? Did the you Mint? did you find that in the book? Because uh, I I remember I had remembered that as as the turn uh, as you <laughs> that you had said the book said that. Did you find that? Well, Jerry has Jerry has said this in interviews. Yeah. Um. That that it was that it was well, the pivot. Um. Well, okay. Yeah. So, so this, well, this well, it, is it elevates a certain episode. callousness and cynical cynicism. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes, I interrupted a you. Very cynical episode where um where George the episode begins with George. Uh, there's some program in his school where you put fifty cents every week in a bank account, and he had totally forgotten about it, and <laughs> he just was. They, they just tracked him down and said, "Hey." We have $1,900 in a bank account that belongs to you. So he's like, it's found money. Um, I, I want to like go put it on a horse or whatever. Um, like I want to parlay this into something bigger. And um, uh, Elaine's dating an artist who goes in for surgery. And Kramer and Jerry very cynically want to go, quote, unquote, watch them cut the fat bastard up. Um, <laughs> um, and, do you know Jerry, uh, Jerry uh, ad-libbed that line? Yeah, yeah, I remember you saying that, yeah. And was haunted by it, but he could kind of feel this is where we're going. Well, yeah. it's funny, like, you said that and before I watched the episode. When I watched the episode, he's kind of, like, chewing food as, as he says the line. <laughs> yeah! Uh, and, and so they're up in, these, in this viewing gallery, viewing the surgery, and viewing it as if it's a movie. Kramer's there with a box of movie theater candy of, of Junior Mints. One of the mints goes inside of, of, of the... the without anyone noticing as they're kind of fussing one f- drops into the man who's being operated on and he gets uh, dreadfully sick after the surgery and George decides that maybe he'll buy spend that $1900 on his art even though he hates it because maybe if he dies that art will become worth a lot of money which all of this is you know, just <laughs> not caring at all about the person you know, it's it's just about um, either watching a surgery, which might be interesting, or about <laughs> making money off of it. Yeah. Right. All right. So, so after, uh, so what? Roy attributes his sudden medical bounce back to 
George's buy George buying the ark, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, although, uh, um, the doctor says, <laughs> "What does the doctor Perhaps say, Christopher?" It was something from above, <laughs> which it literally was that a junior mint fell from above into the open uh, surgery site. Yeah. So what? Like Kramer. Kramer's like shoving junior mints, like just really disgustingly eating the junior mints, like right, like one after another during the surgery, right? Which who does that? Like who watches surgery <laughs> like a gripping movie, right? But th- this is this is sort of the amorality of these characters, right? Um, and uh, and he what he keeps forcing one on Jerry, and Jerry's like no, 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 no. And finally, in the like the tussle, literal tussle over a junior mint, right? Again, another mm-hmm. theme: the triviality. Yes. In the presence of something monumental and 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 life important, it's life and have, death on the operating life table. Life and death on the operating table. Fussing physically, right. like like George, uh, Kramer's like, no, take it, take, try one, try one, and he's like, no, and he pushes his hand. So you have yeah. the intersection, the physical intersection of yeah. the triviality and amorality of these characters, and the the, the selfishness, self, pure self centeredness of these characters, which is funny. The whole, we're laughing all at it, right? And the intersection, it intersects with a life and death event. And again, this is like the malevolent God, right? Flipping flipping his coin. Like, does he live? Does he die? Does he live? Ah, I guess the junior mint, like, saved the incision. So he lives this time. Uh, yeah, and that, um, that uh, Jerry Seinfeld has, in subsequent interviews, kind of marked as the, uh, as, as the pivot point. Um, and, uh, and it became, I, th- I think in retrospect, we kind of... Uh, Many cultural anthropologists, historians, pop culture mavens, people who who like to talk, talking heads, um, <laughs> have have really kind of recognized that that Seinfeld put its put its finger on something. Um, I've got to say um, that Larry David really embodies this. I've never watched uh, the show Curb Your Enthusiasm, but I do. I did like Jerry Seinfeld's show on Hulu, um, comedians in cars getting coffee. Mm. And in that, he interviews Larry David at one point and takes Larry David to kind of um, takes him out to coffee for breakfast. And Larry David is is surveying the menu and like a character out of Seinfeld is like, ah, what am I supposed to get? How do people even eat? Um, because as a as a sort of a, a Hollywood uh, Mandarin, um, he eats healthy. He eats well. Yeah. So, listener, if you don't know, um, the people who run this country. Um, uh, they they eat healthy. Um, there's a reason they look nice. <laughs> and uh, uh, Jerry Seinfeld says, "Why don't you get what? Well, why don't you try something that you've never had? Why don't you live like like Middle America does? Just pick something from the menu." And he's like, "Okay, I'll get the pancakes." And Jerry Seinfeld's like, "Seriously, you've never had pancakes?" He's like, "No, never had pancakes." <laughs> and so Larry David eats pancakes. And and all the t- all the while, while he's eating these pancakes, he uh, three things are happening. Uh, number one, he's being basically he's like George Casanza in in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> like everything bothers him. He's he's noticing things that you and I wouldn't notice noticing, and it's driving him up the while. And he's loudly complaining about it. Jerry is cracking up. Like it's clear how these two had synergy or at a writer's table, and they're just really funny people. That that like. It's the comedy of ordinary life, right? Of everyday life. They find fun, funny things in everyday interactions and, and, and then dial it up to 11. Um, he's also enjoying the pancakes because 
Um, it's got a bunch of things, right? Butter, sugar, carbs that, that hit and like release dopamine in our brains immediately. It hits a bunch of sweet spots in our brain, right? And then thirdly, he's full of like in, in really real moral self-loathing. Um, because this is the true health is the real religion and the true morality yes. of our cultural oh mandates. And and he as he stands up at the end of the interview, he pats his belly and in real um almost as as you and I you or I would confess our sins, says, How do people live like this? Like shakes his head. And it was just really insightful. I mean, this yeah, is the moral that's... universe of Seinfeld. That's interesting. Huh. I, well, I, I'm actually queuing this up to watch later. <laughs> so that's speak. that's kind of my final thought. Any any, do you want to tie a bow on this in any way? Your final thoughts on Seinfeld? I think, nope, I like how you did it. It's perfect. All right, shall we pray? Let's pray. Uh, you have it up. Would you lead us? It'll be my pleasure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Let us pray. Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name. Increase in us true religion. Nourish us with all goodness and bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. O God, the source of all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may pass our time in rest and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord and by your great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Next week. Next week, Christopher. <laughs>